Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 427th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who loves the deliciousness of a thorny cacti. We're talking with Zachary Berry about edible cacti and their fruits. Zach is a graduate student at Arizona State University studying urban ecology, botany, and animal behavior. He serves on the board of the Homestead Cactus Sanctuary, a local nonprofit that teaches people how to grow and use cacti as food. Welcome to the show today, Zach. Are you ready to rock? Absolutely. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, so in high school, I started out in Future Farmers of America, and I was mostly interested in wildlife management. From there, I kind of transitioned into the, the, the herpetological field or the keeping of reptiles. And from there, I went into the Phoenix Zoo as a volunteer. Oh, wow. And I really got interested in uh, animal behavior and how, uh, really how important all the, all the little animals are. You know, the invertebrates, the birds, the lizards that people don't often pay mind to. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I... Uh, put a hold on education, went into the military. And then when I came back out, I kind of switched over into really wanting to understand plants more. So I started in community college, started gardening, started getting into sustainability. And then from there, that's when I I met Thomas Tuoti, started working together, became good friends, and then started up the Homestead Cactus Sanctuary. From there, started a couple workshops, started teaching people how to utilize cacti, how important they are for all of those other organisms, the birds, the bees, everything else, here I am. Wow, there you go. So before we transition from the small animals, tell us why animals out there are so important in the whole ecosystem. So all of the different components of the ecosystem are important. The rats, they help disperse seeds. People don't often think about that. A lot of the birds, they'll come up and collect a lot of the seeds, uh, cactus seeds especially. They'll, they'll dig into a saguaro and they'll pull out all of the different pulp-covered seeds that stick to their face. They'll fly around, and then as they're perching in other places, they'll drop those seeds off. All those other organisms are important for dispersal, mm-hmm. but also for maintenance of the health of the, uh, the, the plants themselves. 
So uh, like a lot of wasps, they'll fly by and they'll come visit some of the flowers for nectar. And then during this, they're going to also check out the plant for any of their, their prey items. So beetles, caterpillars, things of that nature. So all of these other organisms are incredibly important for keeping the health of the ecosystem in check. Wow, that's cool. So I never even thought about that, that, you know, a, a wasp could come along and take out a caterpillar that's damaging the cacti. Yeah, they're very important for that. Wow. And I've also heard in the past that ants and uh, terrestrial creatures, uh, is that the right word, terrestrial, live underground? Maybe that's, yeah. maybe that's not the right word, but animals and uh, bugs that live underground are, can be pollinators as well. A lot of creeping plants, so camasyce or the, the common spurges, mm-hmm. ants love those. And, and it's just because they're, they're so close to the ground, they produce a lot of seeds that the ants can readily grab, and the flowers are accessible to them. So those ants will crawl up, and they'll actually conduct the act of pollination. While in, in other cases, the ants can actually kind of steal the pollen, or they'll just take from the other plants, because the, the act of pollination requires a specific pollinator. Oh, sometimes a hummingbird, sometimes a specific bee. Or an ant. Cool. Or an ant, yeah. So let's talk about edible cacti because, you know, generally we don't think about cactuses edible. But I've lived in the desert southwest for 51 years, and I know for sure that prickly pears are edible. And I've eaten saguaro cacti before, but there's got to be more than that. So in terms of the edibility in the Sonoran Desert, uh, so you have your common prickly pear. Everybody knows about that. So w- when you look at them, you see the, the bright purple fruits and you're like, ooh, that looks delicious. And then you go for it. Another part that you have is you have the fleshy vegetative part or, or the actual stem, the the pad. Of course, some of them, you know, they have more spines than others. So the, the ones you see on the grocery store, those are common South American variety that's now cultivated all over. But uh, aside from those common prickly pears, you also have the, the barrel cacti, which have a different style of fruit. They're not the, the really delicious, juicy, fleshy fruits, but they're, I mean, they have a nice zesty flavor, kind of like pineapple. Oh, um, wow. Uh-huh. Another thing that they have is just a lot of seeds on the inside. So if you actually go to pop them off, the seeds just start spilling out. But they're incredibly rich in amino acids. And the kind of the reason that it's dumping those seeds out right away is because that it knows that things are going for those seeds. So it's kind of forcing that dispersal. So a lot of cacti that are actually really edible, they're edible in regards to their dispersal mechanism. So prickly pear, they're very low growing. They're often really accessible by people. So they're armed up until the point that the fruits are ready. Uh And when the fruits are ready, then people can just walk up and grab them. Not too many because glockids add up and they hurt a lot. Yeah, we're going to talk about glockids here in a minute, but go ahead. Yeah, we'll get to those. But then you have the other fruits that they grow higher up on the cacti. So you have the large columnars, like you mentioned, the saguaro. Mm -hmm. Those fruits are generally out of reach of people. So they're more difficult to get to unless unless you know how. And there's a lot of history about just dates revolving around the harvest of the saguaro cacti, where families will go out, they'll get saguaro limbs, connect them together, and then just knock off the fruits. And those are more difficult. But then once you go down farther into Mexico, South America, you see more more of those different columnar species. So you get to the, the Sirius or, or what's known out here is the Peruvian apples. Oh, yes. Those ones are, they're, in my opinion, they're, they taste like Fruit Loops to me. Oh, really? What they have is fruits that are all the way up in the canopy, and they're, they're really accessible to birds. Mm-hmm. So that dispersal mechanism, the, the really sweet flavor, 
is because they have kind of an, an incredible suite of other dispersers. Um, you have the birds. As you go farther south, you get more primates, not, not just people. You get the smaller monkeys. All sorts of animals oh, are coming wow. to, to help disperse these fruits right? or the seeds, rather. So we have all those dispersal mechanisms, but what about us eating them? I know that the saguaro cactus fruit happens to be one of my favorite, but you don't get very much and it's kind of hard to harvest. So can you tell us about the fruit itself? So for the fruits, you have all sorts of different styles. You have some that are rich in seed quantity, some that are rich in seed pulp, and then others are just really juicy. So the really juicy ones you have are the saguaros or a really commonly cultivated one is known as the dragon fruit. Commonly cultivated in the sense that you don't find them very often around here in the Sonoran Desert. They're, they're very, they, they like a lot of water. So I want to jump into the, what it's like to eat them. So let's start with the prickly pear. And we mentioned glockids a little bit earlier. And glockids are these gnarly little thorns. Tell me about them. So glockids are actually kind of a, a nuisance, but they're only found on the prickly pear or a choya. So, mm -hmm. so closely re related members, the, the apuntia and the choya are, they're both commonly used and they've been used for a very long time by Latin American cultures. And these are the prickly pears or, the, or some people know the choya as the jumping choya. And I'll, I'll get on the choya a little bit later in regards to the flower buds of cacti. Uh -huh. But for the glockids on prickly pear, they're kind of like spines. But they're, they're really fragile, so they, they come off the plant very, very easily. So if you brush up against them, these things are going to stick inside of your skin, and they're just really small hairs, and they're annoying. So you, you don't really feel them right away, uh -huh. but as the day progresses, you they em. start to tax on your hand, and they start to hurt. The thing is that they brush off very easily. Yeah. So for, for me, when I harvest prickly pear, I mean, I'll go out with tongs or gloves if I'm trying to get a bunch of them. But if I'm just riding my bike to class, I, I'm going to go up to the, the actual cactus and find whatever leaves I have nearby. I, I like to go for soft leaves, but um, citrus leaves work too. Anything that can grab the glockid oh, instead yes. of your finger. Yes. So, you, so I'll just go by, brush off whichever ones I'd like to eat until they're all clean. And then I'd grab it, pick it off, start peeling it. Or sometimes I just pop it in my mouth and ride. And, and the cool thing is that as soon as I throw these prickly pears in my mouth, mm -hmm. it's instantly cooling. So oh, if yes. it's like the, the heat of the day is tearing my body down, I pop these in my mouth and it's, it's refreshing immediately. So wow. it, you get a lot of good moisture in it and you chew through it. So an important part of eating cacti is that they're slow burning carbohydrates. So you don't just use it all at once. It, it actually carries with you throughout the day. And kind of a reason that cacti get you to do this is that the, when you eat prickly pear, those seeds are pretty hard. So you can't readily just bite through them. And that's kind of what the cactus wants. So for a long time, people would just kind of walk through the desert when these cacti are in bloom or, mm -hmm. or when they're fruiting, they'll collect the fruits and just start eating them on their walks through. These nomadic tribes would just start walking up hills, start looking at where they wanted to go next. And they'd have these lovely little jewels that they just carry with them, keeps them hydrated, keeps them cool, and they get their, their vitamins for the day. Mm-hmm. They'll go up to the top of a mountain, start spitting the seeds along, and then later on, those uh, those winter rains will come in, yep. hit the seeds, and they'll start popping up. And that's that's really what the cactus is looking for. And those really flavorful cacti that you get, mm -hmm. they've been growing in association with that dispersal for a long time. So the prickly pear, I've actually been harvesting prickly pear 
fruit for oh, probably 40 years here in the desert. And they're this amazing color when they're ripe. And one of the things that I do for sure is use tongs because uh, those glockids, well, they are irritating. Uh, they're much more irritating to me than using tongs. So <laughs> I always do that. Tell me about the color of the prickly pear and what we can do with the prickly pear juice. Right. So, so the the color of the prickly pear, the, the common ones that you find around here, uh, they get a kind of a robust purple color. Mm-hmm. So when you know that they're ripe and ready, they're very solid, very shiny, and there's no green on the prickly pear whatsoever. And actually, that color only shows up when you go to touch the fruit and it kind of just comes right off. Mm. And that's when it's ready. But th- there's actually a few different prickly pears. Like some of them can come in white. Some of them are a light pink color, some of them even green. But that, that all depends on the species. The, the common ones we have out here, they're the Engelmann's Afuntia. And, and those, those are the ones that they, they have that solid purple color when you harvest. That They're very common around Arizona, mm-hmm. commonly planted. And grow wild. Yeah, and, and grow. they do great out here. And then the, the juice of the prickly pear, it has a, a lot of other rich benefits. People have been using it medicinally. The peel, it, an extract of the peel they've been using medicinally. And then people have been taking the juices down either to jam it or you can even mix it with other other foods to change the color of it. Yeah, cool. it, it, it's, it's an incredibly versatile fruit. Yeah, well, and I've, I've used them for prickly pear margaritas, prickly pear lemonade, definitely prickly pear syrup and jam over the years. I also one time had chicken that was marinated in prickly pear, and that was amazing. That sound pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it was. So let's before we transition though, I want to talk about the you know the large columnar cacti. You know, in in a lot of cases, it's the saguaro cactus and the fruit. I think the natives call it a tuna. Is that the case? Uh, yeah, the, the tuna is also it's also a common name for the fruit for the the prickly pear too. Ah. And yeah, so the saguaro cactus is is the iconic Sonoran Desert cactus. It's all across Arizona. And, and when people think of columnar cacti, that's, that's really the standout specimen. And, and cacti, they're very, very diverse in their, their habits of growth. So you'll have the saguaro is, is that one that just grows really tall and then just starts growing arms later in its life. Mm-hmm. And it keeps all of the fruits up high. And then you have other, other similar species that, you know, they, they have their arms starting lower, which is the cardone, and then other columnars, which they produce arms pretty readily. And, and those are the serious, I mentioned before, the Peruvian apple. And then uh, other columnars or similar columnars are the, the pataya or the dragon fruit, which is kind of similar to the, the other serious I was mentioning. Uh-huh. And, and th- these ones are actually kind of interesting in the fact that they're not just columnar, but they're, they're partly epiphytic. And epiphytic means that they'll actually root into or on, onto other surfaces and extract nutrients that way. So oh, the, the dragon fruit, if, if you've ever grown a dragon fruit and it's like growing next to a moist wall, you'll start to notice that these adventitious roots will start coming out of the, the tissue. Oh yes, I've and seen that are, before. That's actually in the tropical environment where these things are adapted to. Mm-hmm. They'll use that to climb up trees and that way when they're finally ready and finally mature, they'll be up inside of the tree flowering and producing fruits. And that's where the birds are going to go to the fruits. Right. With the, with the roots of the cacti actually burrowing into the tree, I think, right? So they're, they're not really digging 
into the tree, so to speak, that they're climbing onto the bark, getting in all those little gaps where the, where the soil and moisture is trapping. Uh, so in mature trees, this is, wow. this is really easy where they're starting to split. So an interesting thing that happens with this is uh, sometimes when birds poop out the seeds, you'll get some, some smaller cactus species that can actually start being sort of epiphytic in larger cacti. Mm-hmm. So like I, I've seen some, some smaller pincushion cacti growing or even um, prickly pear growing inside of a saguaro, like up in a saguaro. Oh, yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah, wow. Somebody showed me at, uh, at one of my uh, pruning classes recently, somebody showed me a picture of uh, prickly pears growing on a roof. They had actually rooted in on the dirt of a, a roof on somebody's house. It was so cool. Yeah, they're they're pretty adaptable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you and a buddy of yours started the Homestead Cactus Sanctuary. Uh, tell me a little bit about that, would you, and what that's about? Right. So the Homestead Cactus Sanctuary is a local nonprofit where we're actually working to uh, set up workshops and kind of like uh, nature walks out into various trails near urban areas mm-hmm. to inspire people to bring cactus more into their lives and get a different perspective on the cultivation and even consumption of these incredibly resilient species. So what is your particular position with the nonprofit? What are you doing with them? So for me, I'm actually focusing on trying to take the conservation issue of cacti and, and reach them out to an audience that needs to hear it. There's a lot of, a lot of students in community college, and, and they're, they're trying to be active in, in figuring out this whole climate change issue. And, and a huge part of that is looking into the cacti that are, that are currently being damaged by our own urbanization. So, so if you're going east towards Globe, you're driving on a highway that's still kind of being expanded. And that expansion is starting to step into, well, so that they have to demolish cacti or pull them out and move them somewhere else when they do that. My focus is trying to look at these different populations and find ways to get other people inside of those urban communities interested in cacti specifically, but to then hopefully direct them into understanding these other avenues and these other ways that they can either be active and help out themselves or to where they can, they can help with the ex situ conservation or, or bringing those species to, to conserve them in the urban areas that are damaging the native populations. Wow. Sounds like you have your work cut out for you. Well, don't we all? <laughs> oh, there you go. Isn't that the truth? So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. So, yeah, um, my failure is actually probably more recent. So really, I can just describe it as trying to take on way too much. Oh, yes. I resemble that remark. <laughs> so th- really, to, to figure that one out, I kind of just self-reflected, shaved off all the things that I was giving too much time on, and then found out what I needed to do. And then basically when I found that out, it kind of just fell together. Mm-hmm. Cool. And what do you consider your biggest success? So getting accepted into the master's program was actually a big success for me, mostly because I took it as accumulation of everything that I'd learned from coming out of my bachelor's, which was kind of exploring the taxonomy and phylogeny and identification of plants, invertebrates, and all sorts of things in the Sonoran Desert but really plants. And, and when I started to actually key out the different characteristics of plants and find out why this plant is what it is and not in comparison to another, I don't know, that, that was a success for me. Oh, cool. And what drives you? What's your big why about all this? I mean, for me, I like to think that the plants are telling me what to do, but really I just, I like to see the world as a better place. And 
in order to do that, I think it takes people who are actively engaged in fixing the damage that we've done so far. Mm -hmm. So I, I get up and I try to do that. The plants are talking to you. I love that. So we, but in order to hear them, you got to be listening. How do you listen? So uh, the first way of listening is uh, don't pull your weeds. Uh, obviously, if they're really weedy, sure. But but looking at the way you look at a plant is, I think that's how you're going to act. So if you just walk by a, a plant that could someday be beautiful and flower, but you say, you know what, nah, and you just stop it there, I think I think that's it sets you up for something different. But I'm the kind of guy that will walk by and let it flower. That part, and we talk about this in permaculture all the time, that part is the observation part. So we're really, the first step then you're saying is observation. For listening to the plant, you have to know how the plant is responding to, to what you're doing to it, what you're giving it. And, and by that, it's, it's are the flowers looking great? Are, is the, how's the fruit tasting? Is it what you expected? And, and when you take all of that in, and if your plant is being visited by, visited by pollinators, if the birds are coming and checking it out, if it's looking healthy, if all of those things are working together, then, then the plant tells you with the fruit that it's giving you that it's happy. And, and that is how you know. Perfect. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Uh, so in order to really get a solid respect for, the, for, for everything out here in Arizona, um, I, I would recommend A Natural History of the Sonoran Desert which is a book put out by the Arizona Sonoran Desert Museum. Mm -hmm. And it has a lot of information on the, the geographic history of Arizona. Well, the Sonoran Desert, the invertebrates, the fish, the birds, and how all of those kind of relate together. I love it. Perfect. And was there a second one? Oh, yeah. And the, the second one actually is a, it's the field guide to the cacti and succulents of Arizona. Oh, and this yes. one was actually put out by Peter Breslin, Rob Romero, Greg Starr, and Vaughn Watkins, among others. And then this one's, it's great because Apuntia or the prickly pear, pretty difficult to identify. It's a good go-to book if you're having trouble with that. Perfect. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Find your passion and stick to it. And, and you'll find where you want to be. That's a big one. That is a big one. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Zach. Thank you for having me. So how can our listeners find you? Um, so you can follow the Homestead Cactus Sanctuary on Facebook. You can also visit us at our website, homesteadcactussanctuary.org. And we'll be into, or, and we'll continue to put out workshops and information about future hikes. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash cactus sanctuary. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are served. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners, if you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, 
Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit denalicanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's denalicanning.com forward slash free.